0: Welcome to How Not to DM. I'm your host, Derek. Thanks for joining me on my quest to interview the very best Dungeon Masters on this plane of existence. Before we get started, I need to shout out my patrons. Thanks a ton for supporting the show and making this all possible. Remember that 10% of my Adam and patron money goes to support local LGBTQ plus youth via Encircle. Check out my link tree for more information about their great work. Also, earlier this week, I was a guest on The Dungeon Cast, which is a really fun podcast where they kind of go over the lore of D&D. We talked about pit fiends and Will and Brian are really awesome. They do a good job of reviewing the lore of D&D and talking about what makes sense, what doesn't, having a little fun and also keeping it light so yeah check out the dungeon cast that'll be in the episode notes here if you want to go listen to that next go ahead and add it to your queue also a quick update on too hot one shot the kickstarter if you weren't able to back the kickstarter for whatever reason or you missed out then we are selling the game we're selling the maps and the tokens we're selling the basic rules on itch.io and drive through rpg If you are trying to decide between which of the two you want to buy from, I would suggest buying from itch just because we make a greater percentage of the profits from an itch sale than from the drive through RPG sale. But if you already have a drive through account set up and it's easier for you, I totally understand. So the links should be in the episode notes here. We should have that all done and dusted. And yeah, if you want to go check that out or if you want to share it with people who didn't get a chance to back or whatever, then go ahead and check those out and purchase from there. Awesome. And now on to this episode's guest intro. Michael is DM for the family-friendly actual play podcast Relic of the Past. He's also a game designer and helped design the level one adventure in Wizards of the Coast's Candlekeep Mysteries book. He's great advice for getting into TTRPG design and for running your own games. Enjoy!
1: So I actually started playing in 1979, and this is how dumb kids are. It was a brand new thing, taken over the whole wide world. As preteen teenager, we we're like, "Oh, this has always been here." We started with the basic set in purple box, the one with a gal on the front with the giant candelabra torch thingy, and, and the guy with the spear. And had such a good time with that. We uh, we went into AD&D and then on from there. But the actual genesis of it was fairly fascinating. My uh, parents got for me the Dungeons & Dragons coloring album. It was this uh, large format coloring book that also had kind of a stripped down version of the game that you could play with just a handful of D6s. It was almost kind of like choose your adventure plus dice rolling. They got it for me because they knew I liked The Hobbit and fantasy things like
0: that. Would you play it solo? Is that how it was written?
1: Yeah, basically you could do that or you could do that with a group too. Each person could have part of the story, but basically yeah, it would allow you to go through solo as well. So my friends and I at the, our sixth grade graduation went to Bicentennial Park there and celebrating our graduation. There, we were having a picnic and we played through the game and it was so much fun that my friend Brian went and got the basics out after that. The rest is kind of history. We stuck with it all the way through second edition and then the very beginning of third edition. That's uh, when I was in college. And then I was working on my senior thesis and a whole bunch of things like that. So I kind of dropped out of the picture at that point. Then I graduated and went to the terrible world of work. And this was before the internet. So you couldn't just go find a group to play with just off the drop of a hat. I mean, you'd have to go and find a uh, gaming store and then find a group usually with like notices put up on a pegboard. And from there, then you could go and actually start up again. So that was really difficult to do. And plus, I was working for a little startup company. So we were doing like six, 12 hour days a week trying to get this company going. Kind of dropped out of the hobby for most of the third edition days. And then almost 20 years later, my uh, youngest son, who was, he was probably like eight or nine at that point in time, said, hey, dad, you know, anything about this Dungeons and Dragons thing. And I'm like, yeah, I think I do. So we went and bought the books. And this was the fourth edition days. And of course, you know the first thing we did when we opened the books up is like, "What the heck is this?" Didn't look anything like the D and I knew. But we played through it. We still had a great bit of fun. But then the D and D next play test came up, and we dove into that. And I actually, had two play test groups meeting on alternate weekends. And we went all the way through the play test. And I think Wizards probably got sick of hearing my feedback. When the uh, play test got done, we jumped right into fifth. And that's actually when the podcast started that I work on the Relic of the Past podcast. We were uh, looking to uh, play another podcast because I'm a, a scoutmaster for a scout troop. And so we would play DD podcasts as we're driving to the campouts and back. But, you know, we could have some 10-year-old scouts in there. So we didn't want to have anything that might possibly have bad words in it. And we were kind of running through the available clean podcasts, And so one of our guys just said, why don't we podcast our game? And we're like, oh, yeah, sure. That should be easy, right? Here we are five years later still doing it, but it was a uh, to-do to begin with, trying to get that all together. But we figured out with many mistakes along the way how to actually put together a podcast, and the rest is
0: history. Yeah, there are two kinds of podcasters, those that spend years planning what they're going to do, and then those that, like you and like me who just say, well, how hard could it be, and jump in and then find out. <laughs> yes.
1: Yeah, we started out with a webcam in the middle of the table and and uh, an old Macintosh that you know had to be crank-started. It was so old.
0: Yeah, I bet, I bet. I'm interested to know what other shows you found that were clean at the time that you listened to with your scouts.
1: We were mainly listening to Critical Hit. Then also, there was a couple of them there that were doing that as well. Personally, I was listening to a bunch of other ones, you know, like Adventure Zone. That wasn't going to help. And listening to Nerd Poker with the the comedians, and that wasn't going to help. Kind of ran through most, most of the things. There was Sneak Attack was out there. We were listening to that. But we kind of ran through the clean ones really quick after a short time.
0: Yeah, there's actually quite a few more now that I know of that came to be because of Sneak Attack, When I've had quite a few of them on my show. In fact, by the time this releases, DM Dave of Tomes of the Chaos Bard will have been on. I've had Reed and Josh on from Sneak Attack. It's really fun to see, though, that there's kind of more and more of that content you could play with your family around or scouts or whoever it is that you're working with. So Awesome. It sounds like you definitely were running the games when you started playing with your son again, doing a little bit of fourth edition and then D&D Next. Had you been running games before that? Do you remember what your first experience was running games?
1: Oh, yeah, it's still stuck in my mind to this day. So um, like I said, my friend Brian bought the Purple Box, the old basic set. And I remember him coming over to my house. and We all sat down around the table and tried to figure out how this thing worked. We did the usual thing where we spent like four hours buying all of our equipment and realizing we're out of time. My first character was a fighter. I remember I don't remember the name anymore, but I think I only played him like once and then went and rolled another character up because that's what you do. It was hilarious. In the early days, we had no idea what we we're doing. So we were just kind of making it up on the fly with the uh, wizard. It's like, what do you mean I only get one spell a day? That's stupid. It's like you can cast magic missile every single encounter. Go for it. And didn't understand the whole action economy there. And of course, you know, that's now kind of translated to like cantrips these days. And then like if we had damage left after we hit somebody with the martial weapon, we'd allow them to cleave into the next foe with that, with the, you know, so oh, there's two hit points left on this one. So I'll go and, you know, just cleave into the next one, kind of making it up. And then we had no idea how the death rules work. So if you drop to zero hit points, you're dead, too bad. We had no idea about death saves and all that stuff. So just kind of making it up and having a grand time. And the real fun thing about it back then was, no one had like a campaign. It was all brand new. So what would happen is you'd go down to the gaming store and buy a module. And Basic Set came with the, the uh, Keep on the Borderlands. So we, we played through that about 1600 times. But then you get to the end of that and you're really like, well, what do you want to do next? So you go down to the gaming store and it's like, oh, this module here goes from four to eight. Let's do this. And then you'd get through that and you'd go to the next ones. There was no continuity or anything. It'd be like, okay, we're in the Caves of Chaos. Oh, hey, now we're uh, defeating the Slave Lords. Oh, hey, now we're against giants. Oh, hey, now we're taking on a spaceship.
0: So you just jump from one thing to the next. I think the concept of like people having worlds, I mean, starts with Greyhawk or with Blackmoor, but really didn't become popular until much later on. In your experience running games, you may not remember like specific stuff from that far back. but What are some of the big mistakes you feel like you've made while running games? Could be mistakes in specific sessions or could be habits that you had for a long time that you finally realized you had to shake. But yeah, what are some good examples you've got for us of how not to DM and lessons that we could learn from them?
1: Actually, one of the things that I remember learning way back then was actually our gamer group fell apart. And it was because of interpersonal conflict between two of the players. They then set up factions within the group and all this stuff. And we were like teen kids at that point in time. So we didn't have any tools to deal with it. But obviously looking back now as an adult, what we would want to do is like, if you see something like that happening, you know, it's like, okay, call timeout, sit down with the people, find out what's going on. What's your story? What's their story? Get a resolution to the conflict before it starts blowing up and people start choosing sides and things like that. Most recently... If you're listening to the podcast, there's mistakes right and left there. It's hilarious. A lot of times you don't even realize how big the mistake was. Like I had this one great encounter that I made up where the party was down in this graveyard. They didn't even realize it was a graveyard. It was an old abandoned graveyard. And of course, they're being attacked by undead. But there was skeletal arms that were reaching out from the ground. So they had to do a strength check just to get away from these claws. And then they had these fogs that were just randomly going around the battlefield and if you got hit by the fog if you didn't make a constitution save then you basically would go unconscious at least that was what was in my mind i made them move randomly so they just like went all over the battlefield and never ever got close to anybody i mean like they were just like running away from people not intentionally but it's like yeah that could have used a little more testing before i put it live on the game there because i thought it was gonna be the coolest little obstacle to go for and Instead, it just kind of was nothing. It's just I, I put these little cotton balls on the grid on the table, and they just kind of randomly moved around and never, ever impacted anybody.
0: Did you have them moving randomly based on dice rolls, like a D8 for direction?
1: Yeah, then a D4, and it moved that many things in that direction and always moved away from the person it was doing just because it was random. Actually, I killed a player with random, too, one time. That was less, well, not a non player, but a character. If I killed a player, I'd be in jail. Right. We've got some plots that go on. Everyone has several different characters. they got their main character, then there's a Dragonborn character and a Tabaxi character. So the Tabaxi characters were trying to shut this rift that elemental chaos was coming through. And so basically they had chaos globes, which are basically just reflavored death kisses. And they would randomly go and lash out with their various abilities. And unfortunately, they just randomly landed on one of the characters way too many times.
0: Killing them It's like, oops. My players, whenever they're in any kind of dungeon and there's a room that appears I could be randomly rolling for something to happen, they expect it and they're just like, all right, what's he going to do now? And I think it's a lot of fun, but to your point, definitely something you've got to try and test out or figure out how to adjust on the fly quickly if it's not working as intended. It can be very tricky, right? I definitely think you should try and mess around with some random stuff and see how it works. And it's really fun for the players too if you can get it right.
1: That's actually another thing I've learned is monkey with those encounters on the fly if they're not working.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I remember one time we, uh, we were playing through Van uh, Fandelver campaign there when we got the new basic set. At one point you're being uh, pit up against an ogre and the rogue started the whole fight by shooting the, the ogre. The party had actually downed the ogre. I mean, it had taken it to zero hit points, but there was like two initiative places between that and the rogue. And so I just let him keep hitting it until the rogue hit it. And thankfully, in that round, the rogue did strike and then the rogue downed it. So it was just kind of really cool that the rogue started the fight and then
0: was able to finish it. As far as really fun or epic moments from your games, do you have any that you want to share with us and maybe some lessons that you learned from these really cool moments that we might use in our own games?
1: So there was a couple of really fun, improvised bits of roleplay. And this is spoilers for people that haven't listened to a podcast that's been out for five years, but that's your own fault at that point. <laughs> so one of our characters, Adri, started out as a half elf. And then about a third of the way into the campaign, she was always have like this immaculate makeup and would wear these really elaborate robes that were just kind of swaddled her whole body. Because it turned out that she wasn't a half elf. She was a half drow. A third of the way through the whole storyline, she falls into a canal all of her makeup washes off, and all of a sudden the party realizes that they've been consorting with a half drow for these many months. Huge bells of alarm went off. And I remember Jesse, who plays Adri, just had this really impassioned plea to trust her the way they had been trusting her for all these many months. And it's like, wow, I couldn't have written something that was that good. It was just fantastic and just like off the cuff. And then also Drew, who plays the uh, character Craval, Krival's a dragonborn, and at one point in the campaign, the the, uh, players all get involved in a Great war between the city-states of Exculbarium Calice and Porta Magnum. It looks like at this point in time that Porta Magnum is about to lose, which is the side that they're on. Except their Prival had taken the foresight to go and position the Dragonborn nation in the mountains, the hills right above where the battlefield was going to be, just in case. And so they're back at the uh, Council of Generals, and the uh, Baron of Porta of Magnum is saying, "Well, I think I may have led you all into your demise. I'm deeply sorry." Unless there's another army to rescue us, I think we're all done for. And they put up their hand, "Um, we have an army. (laughs) And there was a huge battle. And of course, a lot of the dragonborn fell in that battle. While we're doing this, I see Drew over there kind of furiously writing something down. When we got to the end of the episode and the aftermath of the battle, he described how the dragonborn went and piled up all their dead in these ordered rows of honor and then lit the whole thing on fire and just had one massive funeral pyre and then read this death poem out that he had been writing up while the entire episode had been going on. they are like, that was pretty cool, I must say.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. I love it when players take it upon themselves to go above and beyond like that. And it's not something you can just make happen, right? It's something that just has to happen organically. But when it does, it is so fun to witness, especially as a DM.
1: Yeah, and the best thing you can do as a dungeon master is just step back and get out of the way and let it happen because there's some fantastic stuff that your players will bring to the table.
0: I'd love to know from your experiences as a kid and then kind of your um, 20-year break there, what experiences do you feel like you had or maybe parts of your personality that exist that really make you a good fit for the DM's chair or make you interested in it and really enjoy it? Well,
1: part of it is just having this long history with the game. It helps out when you can go and, and kind of look back and say, oh, hey, you know, This is the way we used to do it in first edition, or this is the way we used to do it in second edition. This would actually be like a little less clunky if we did this, or, you know, this is something that I saw in a game one time, but outside of the game, one of the big pieces of advice that I give to people all the time is just go out and have experiences, go out and do things, you know, go camping in the cold when your fingers are so cold, they get numb. So you can describe that feeling to your players when that happens to their characters, you know, go out when it's too hot, go out, you know, walking in the dark or when it's so bright you can't even see, go to the big forest so you can actually describe what that looks like. Go out to the ocean or to the lake or things like that. The more experiences you have, the more you can incorporate into your game. And also, a lot of times you'll be sitting there and going, hey, you know, that cave over there, that would be perfect for the scene for the next thing I'm doing. And it's amazing how those things can just kick off the whole creative process.
0: Yeah that's really good advice that i don't think i've heard yet on the show and i love it especially because i definitely draw from my own personal experiences when i'm trying to think of how to describe things or think of new things to throw at my players so i very much do that but i haven't really like thought about that being a thing that i do so yeah i love it and now a word from how not to dm's sponsors First, let's hear from my friends at, dude, where's my drift? All right, so here's the thing. That drift, the pseudospace plane that's used to travel across pack system fast and beyond run by triune, yeah, it ain't working no more. We got this ship, the pre with this fancy engine that don't work right, jumping the crew all across planes and timelines and alternate realities. And then we got that wild and wacky found family, a lizard, a robot, a brain, a plant, and a slug doctor. Want to know more? Check out Dude, Where's My Drift? All major podcast apps. Twitter and Instagram at DWMD New episodes Monday. They're playing the Starfinder system, so if you've ever been interested in what Starfinder is like, I highly recommend checking it out. You can learn some new rules and have some fun along the way. Next up, a little ad for my friends at Talking That Crit. Two Dragonborn, a Fire Genasi, an Elf, and an Ageless Human walk into a tavern. What, you thought this was a corny D&D joke? Well, kind of. Talking That Crit is an actual play Dungeons & Dragons podcast set in the original world of Jest. Follow the adventures of the other guys as they try and unravel mysteries of the past, interdimensional travel, and a talking bird named Marcuccio, available on all podcast apps and websites. Last but not least, I want to give a shout out to podcasteditors.online and videoeditors.online podcasteditors.online is the group that edits this podcast, and they do an awesome job, as you can hear. They also do actual play podcasts or any other kind of podcast that you may have. So take a look at their website at their great rates and see if you are interested in buying some editing hours a la carte. And if you tell them I sent you, you might get a little discount on your first couple of hours there of your podcast. So check that out. Videoeditors.online, also very useful if you are a YouTube creator, if you have any kind of video content, TikTok or Reels, short form YouTube shorts, they do it all. So go check out Videoeditors.online if you're a video creator and you want to take advantage of that too. So same deal, if you want to mention How Not To DM sent you, I'm sure they'll hook you up with some discounted hours to start. So yeah, check those both out if you are a podcast or video creator or both. All right, with all that out of the way, let's dive into this week's version of Quickfire Chaos. Welcome to Quickfire Chaos! This week on Quickfire Chaos, Michael and I are going to roll on some random D100 tables from the internet to create a scenario to roleplay. We're going to start then with D-100 NPC voice description table. So go ahead and roll and let's see what we get. Ooh, 50 even, 5-0. Speaks almost entirely without moving their jaw. So kind of the Clint Eastwood thing. Uh, Yeah, looking really mean and just not really moving his mouth at all. Love it. That's a good way to describe it. Next one is personality. Zero, nine. They have some kind of bad habit, and I will let you decide what it is, but they have a couple of examples. Picking your nose, drooling, bad odor. (laughs) That'll be fun. (laughs) NBC job. Okay, and that's
1: a 34.
0: Dairy farmer or dairy maid, depending on what you want to do. Lastly, the city quest, or what's happening in the city, and why you need the help of an adventurer or team of adventurers here. And that's a 58. I'll let you decide how this is going to work. But it says the village drunkard is stuck in a Groundhog Day loop <laughs> <laughs> and uses his knowledge to mess with the party for 24 hours, as it's the most fun way to spend repeating eternity. <laughs> For 24 hours, you're going to be messing with us somehow. Or maybe someone is messing with you and you need us to break the loop. I'll let you decide what it's going to be. I'll be a copper dragonborn artificer, so I've got like a couple different levels of magnification monocles like glasses, and I've got a dirty apron full of like grease and stuff, and my pockets are full of cogs and wheels and random parts and stuff. You'll
1: undoubtedly be relaxing after getting done with your most current little adventure that you did. And uh, you're back in the tavern, so we're going to meet in a tavern. And enjoying a meal, you've got a couple of clicking and whirring items, no doubt, since you're an artificer, or maybe something's blowing up currently. They like to do that. I've got something stirring my drink automatically. <laughs> exactly. You're taking a deep breath after the another successful foray into the world of adventuring. And all of a sudden, the door opens. This farmer walks in. He's got a straw hat on. There's several different dirt smudges all over the place. It's not uh, something that uh, you would be unexpected to see a farmer have. And there's a noticeable but, you know, wholesome smell of manure about him comes in. And he's just wearing a standard tunic and set of pantaloons and some uh, stained work boots. All of that has been mended several times. This is certainly not a man of means. And he can't help but notice that he's got a large wad in his jaw. And uh, just as it come through, just as a door opens, a spit of tobacco juice onto the floor, and kind of saunter in. Are you the artificer? I've heard that you're an artificer. I could use an artificer.
0: I kind of like lean back in my stool a little bit. Uh, yeah, pops. Uh, I'm I'm known to tinker around with stuff from time to time. But what can I he help you a with? He
1: swivels the chair around backwards and sits down, kind of Captain America style. You see, I'm stuck, and I need a man of your abilities to help me out here. Um, I'm just a simple farmer. I don't understand how these things work. You're one of these smart people. And here's what's going on. The same thing keeps happening to me every day. I wake up, and I come into town, and I go and do my business selling my milk from my dairy. And then I head back out, and I go to bed. And I wake up and it's the same day. I meet the same people. At first I thought, well, you know, this is just weird deja vu, but it's been happening over and over again. Something's going on here. I have to break some sort of a cycle. I have to do something. You're one of these smart people. Can you help me here? I really need some help.
0: Uh. Um- Listen, pal, if monotony is your problem, I mean, I can think of some ways to spice up your life, but it doesn't sound like this is something I can fix. How do you, how do you know it's the same Okay, so day? see,
1: this is what happens. I come out, and I go to the sundial, right? And I check the time, and a dragonfly lands on the sundial.
0: Uh-huh. Every
1: time, the same dragonfly lands on the same sundial. What's the chances that could be happening? First couple times, I'm like, oh, well, it's just dragonflies. You know, maybe there's just a lot of dragonflies. But then I come up there and then one of the neighbor's dogs, he's really annoying. He always chases me down the road. This time, the ignorant mutt runs head first into a post. Every day he does the same thing. He runs head first into the post. You'd think he would learn, but he runs head first in the post every single time. What's the chances, right? And then as I'm going in there, I pass my neighbor and she catches her skirt on one of the little fence posts there on the side and rips it, right? She rips it the same way every single day. All of a sudden I'm kind of realizing this is the same thing happening over and over again. And I've really been counting up, there's like 42 different things that happen as I'm coming to town that happen the same day, the same way. And then like I sell my milk and I come back and I've got the extra money and I put it in the money box and I wake up and it's gone. And the next day, I go and I sell the milk. I put the same amount of money in the money box, and it's gone. It's like I'm repeating the same day over and over and over again.
0: Yeah, that does sound pretty peculiar. Uh, listen, uh, before you woke up on the first day that this stuff started happening, do you remember? Did you do anything? Did you say anything? Did you make someone mad who you shouldn't have made mad? Well, that was the night that we had the big meteor in the sky. You don't think
1: something like that had anything to do with it, do you?
0: If cosmology is involved, it's going to be a lot more difficult than that, friend. But uh, I'll give it a shot. Uh, here's the problem, though: it's nighttime, and by the time I figure out what I'm going to do to help you, you're going to be stuck in your loop well, I again. I
1: think if we hurry, maybe we could figure this out. I, it's not going to start over again until like midnight or something, right? I don't know. You know
0: how these things work. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't. But but. I I don't know. Let's give it a shot. And here's the plan. If if we can't figure it out, come find me. I'm sleeping in the same inn tomorrow morning and tell me my middle name is Cyrus. And then I'll believe you and I'll help you. Okay. All right, let's go see what we can figure out, pal. I guess the first stop is the library and then maybe the temple to the moon goddess. I don't know. We're going to have to figure out something. Sounds good. I'm with you all the way. Anything to get rid of this... Whatever it is. This is really weird. Uh, I haven't heard of this happening before, but if we can figure it out, hey, it might be worth something. But whatever we get that's valuable, you can keep it. Hey, that's an arrangement I can live with. Sounds good. What's your name, friend? My name is
1: Bartholomew. A lot of my friends just call me Mule because I'm stubborn.
0: Oh, well, I was going to say Bart, but we'll take it. (laughs) I go in and shake his hand. The name is Grady.
1: Grady, got it. Just like they put on your mashed potatoes. Sure,
0: sure. All right, cool, that's it. It's just meant to be a fun little vignette, so I think that was perfect. That was fun. I'm really interested to find out (laughs) what is going on that would cause this. Meteors, though, you know, there's all sorts of strange stuff happens with meteors. It's gotta be aliens, right? Probably. I don't know. Something about Mechanus? Anyway. You mentioned it a few times before, you run a podcast called Relic of the Past. You also mentioned you recently passed your five-year anniversary mark, which happened back in September. So number one, congratulations on such a long-running show. That's awesome. It's mind-boggling, actually. I can only hope to get to that point. We'll see how long I can keep doing this. I'd love you to for you to tell us a little bit more about the show and starting it, like gathering the right people together and figuring out how to record it and that kind of thing. And then tell us about how it's been going
1: like i said it's mind-boggling that's been going on for five years i figured it'd be like a project to take like two years and that'd be about it and like we said this was an outgrowth of our group people that was doing the D next play test and fifth edition finally came out and we could finally get our hands on those books we were going to have a campaign and i'd had an idea for this campaign for a while we said we we're going to do it anyways recording or not we're going to do the campaign and uh decided that we're going to go and podcast it. So there was another clean podcast out there that people could play for their kids and they're driving around in the car. And Relic of the Past is a long novel-length tale. It's one long story that we're playing through with the D&D game. And it actually started as a thought experiment on my part a long time ago. They were talking about, uh, with Waterdeep coming out and all the different stuff surrounding that, that several of the mass lords of Waterdeep were liches which is kind of fun for a high fantasy, high magic area. And I started thinking about that. And it's like, okay, you become a lich so you can live forever. After a while, you get pretty bored of living forever, especially after like a thousand years, you would have done all the stuff. What would a lich do at that point in time? I mean, he'd probably go crazy for a lack of excitement. And then I thought, you know, they probably would do, especially a, a truly evil lich would probably start messing with everything. And they would go and start trying to twist the knobs and set the dials and see what would happen if they did this. And so that was the genesis for the idea. There's a a lich that basically is ruining the world, essentially, just to see what the people do, just kick over the anthill to watch all the ants scurry around for his pleasure. So I started sitting down with that whole storyline, and I've been wanting to do a campaign that kind of had the feel of post-Roman occupation Britain. I didn't want the technology level to be that way because then we'd only have chain mail and things like that and so forth, no plate mail. But I wanted to be full on fantasy with plate mail and wizards and all that stuff. But as I was kind of banging that idea around, I decided what I would do is like, there would be this cataclysmic war that took place. So there was the old kingdom and then the war wiped it away. And the remaining baronies that were around the center of this fertile valley that had then impounded into dust by the war, then sprang up as the centers of politics and power, then the rest of it's all just ruins. It's got a very Tolkien-esque feel. This is really kind of my take on Tolkien, because you've got the old kingdom and the new kingdom. But everything in the old kingdom, is all the names are in Latin, to give it that Roman feel. But then everything in the new places, all the current things, are all done with English names on them. All the baronies have uh, Latin names, but then they also have a uh, common English name as well. So, you know, Civitas uh, Cataracta is actually also known as Waterfall City. So depending on, you know, if you're talking with the highfalutin people or the not, is which one you get. And so the whole campaign has been about the players have been thrown into this maelstrom of everything going south. There's fogs coming out of the hills, the crops and the... Uh, livestock are dying baronies are going to war with each other and then they have been tasked to go find out why this is happening and then stop it from
0: happening you started the show five years ago you've mentioned you've got a few different plot lines happening and that kind of thing do you have a plan for the end of the show and if so you know what are you planning to do after that obviously don't spoil the ending but like yeah how are you working towards that end i guess
1: Actually, right now we're kind of in the um, frenetic activity right before the climax. The party has found out who the Relic of the Past was. It's this lich that was left behind a thousand years ago. They've been slowly thwarting all of his plans over the last five years of the campaign. Now they're being sent individual quests to go get items of power so they can go and face him for real for the last time. And when they started out, they got a poem from an oracle. They gave them this cryptic set of instructions on where to go. And they realized that the lich created seven different phylacteries and they have to track them all down. And actually it was kind of fun when they got the first one, they went and and destroyed it and nothing happened. And they realized it was a fake, a well-constructed fake that made them think it was the real one. And when they contacted their advisor, Galchabar, he said that he was pleased to find out it was a fake, because if someone was able to take their soul and then put it into seven different common objects, that would be an immense amount of power. But that's something like you'd see in a storybook somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Actually, two of my players actually got the joke. That was kind of nice. <laughs> anyway, so they've slowly been tracking down the phylacteries the fake ones, as they call them. And now they're down to just the last one, but they need to get these items of power so they can possibly stand up to the lich and take him and the last phylactery out. We're kind of in that phase, and then it's going to be the big last battle, although there's a huge and exciting reveal that's going to happen in that battle. We'll have to wait and see what happens with that, but there's going to be a very interesting thing
0: happening. So you foresee it ending within the next few months, possibly, then? Kind of aiming to do it within this next year, yeah. You're closing in. That sounds like a lot of fun, though. I just, as of recording, finished a three-year-long campaign campaign last saturday and it was a ton of fun because they'd been building up to it and then finally decided all right it's time to teleport into the villain's lair and finish this thing so i spent like three hours planning a crazy combat and stuff like that so uh i'm sure you're gonna have a ton of fun with that lich encounter whenever it happens and you have to think of all of the crazy stops he's gonna pull out to try to stay alive it'll be fun
1: yeah indeed well and they know that he's retreated to the underworld because that was the last clue that they had The last phylactery we found where the souls of the evil are tortured and ground. They know they're going to have to go to the underworld. They don't know exactly how they're going to make it there, but they've got some clues on that. Then they're going to have to face him down. So I can't imagine that things will be in really great shape when they get to the underworld, because there's a lot of bad things in the underworld.
0: He's going to have a lot of reinforcements. After this particular story arc is over, do you have any plans on what you'll do next? Do you have a break planned and you want to dive into it again? Or are you ready to say, we've done this story and and this is the podcast? Or, yeah, what are your plans?
1: Well, We're going to have to go and kind of really have a sit-down discussion with the whole cast and see what they want to do. Because one thing is, like, this is five years later. So it's kind of interesting that players that were in high school are now in college and almost out of college. The ones that were in college are in the working world everybody's life has changed drastically. So it's going to be interesting. Once we get it all done, we'll have to take a deep breath and say, okay, what's next? Do we want to do another
0: one of these? Or have we done enough? We'll see. Do you have diehard fans who've been listening since the very start and are getting super excited for the end here that are bugging you constantly?
1: We definitely do. Obviously, not a lot of them from the very start, but we've had a couple of folks that have been with us pretty much from the beginning, which has been really kind of nice. We've even had some that have dropped in uh, fan art and things like that. And it's like, oh, this is fantastic. It makes you feel like it's all worth doing all this when you get fans come in and tell you that, even if it's only just yet the handful that
0: discovered you five years ago when you first started this. Yeah, I have never had fan art of my show. Maybe one of these days someone will want to draw my face. No, I'm kidding. Don't waste your time on that. (laughs) That's awesome to hear, though. I'm really impressed at how long the show has gone and how consistent it's been, because I know a lot of podcasts struggle with consistency, especially once they get to this point. So it's very impressive.
1: Yeah, well, I've been really lucky in that regard. Well, I've been lucky on two fronts. One of them, the players bought into the storyline right away and wanted to see what the final outcome was. They've been in on the whole thing the whole time, all in. You haven't had them trying to go and do side quests and things like that and try to intentionally derail the storyline. They want to find out what's going to happen in the end. And the other thing is that I've been really blessed with a group of people that are committed to doing it too, because we've kept it going through a pandemic. We've kept it going through fires here in California. People have gone from high school to college, college to work. After the pandemic stopped, everything started up again and it was all a crisis because nothing was working right. But somehow we kept it all going. And in fact, I was uh, interviewing all the players for the fifth anniversary here. And um, Owen, when I was interviewing him, made mention of that. It's like you tally up all the different funded, well-organized podcasts that have been out there that just kind of went by the wayside, especially during the COVID time. After a while, you just kind of feel lucky. It's not even so much the skill as it is the luck.
0: You just luck down to a bunch of people that all want to get together and make this happen. Definitely. Takes a specific group of people, like you said, who are motivated and want to keep going. And yeah, again, I'm very impressed that the show's been running so consistently for so long. You definitely have a lot to be proud of. You also are a contributing author to Wizards of the Coast, specifically on one of their more recent adventure releases, Candlekeep Mysteries. I'd love for you to tell us about how that happened and what the process was like working on a book for official D&D amazing experience.
1: So it all started innocently enough as these things often do. Chris Perkins just put out a tweet on Twitter saying, is there anybody out there who would like to do some freelance work for us? So of course, you know, I tweeted back, yeah, I'd love to do some freelance work for you. Me and 2000 of our closest friends all probably responded to him. And somehow in the whole process there of winnowing those out, it came down to my name coming up on the shortlist for this whole thing. And for that, really, I have to thank the um, TTRPG community because Chris said in one of his interviews that they went and asked people, here's a list of names. Who do you know on this list that would be good for this project? And uh, my name was on it. So, you know, that was amazing. I got an email out of the blue saying, you know, how would you like to work with us uh, on an upcoming Wizards project? I had totally forgotten about that tweet. It was probably like a year before. And so my first thought was, this is the worst phishing email ever. Who would even believe this? (laughs) But then I got on LinkedIn and punched the guy's name up. And it's like, oh, no, he's a producer at Wizards. This is an actual guy. And of course, you know, responded, yeah, I'd love to do it. This was the first of the anthologies that Wizards had put out for 5e. And so at the time, previously, all they had done was one of these long form campaign books like Curse of Strahd, Rime of the Frostmaiden, all those ones. So I was thinking they wanted somebody like that. And, you know, they needed somebody to design up a city or an adventure area or something. And we signed the NDA and we get the pamphlet in or the packet in. And the first thing they say is, we would like you to make a pitch for an adventure. And, you know, it had what level range you were in. And mine was levels one to four. But an adventure in this range. That's a mystery that starts in a book and candle keep. To which I went, huh, <laughs> not what I was thinking. I started thinking about it, all sorts of ideas came bubbling up, and I had just most recently gone to a, an escape room. And so I thought, a lot of the old first edition D&D modules, especially the ones for tournaments, were basically just giant escape rooms in Dungeons & Dragons form. Whether it was like X2 Castle Amber, or you know, escaping the dungeons of the Slave Lords, or what have you, There was just a lot of them like that. So what if there was something along those lines, and I just kind of pitched them that idea? They came back about a month later or three weeks later and said, you know, you're in. I pitched it for a first level one because I'm like level one A four. Well, of course you want to do a level one. Never occurred to me at the time that that meant that my module would be the one in the very first in the book. Didn't even cross my mind until people were going through the book doing reviews. And I'm like, da, da, da. oh, and here's the first adventure by Michael Polkinghorne." it's like, oh, yeah, I'm going to be first in all of these reviews. OK, that's good.
0: Right. And everybody who plays it or who starts playing it, they're always going to start with your adventure, even if they don't make it all the way through. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the nice thing about those anthologies
1: is like, you know, you can pluck one of those out no matter what you're doing. So it's like, you know, if you've got a group of 16th level adventures, there's an adventure in there for that. And you can just use those. But yeah, a lot of people are going to play that first one just because the way it works. What was it like to see your name in the book when it came out? That was probably the most bizarre part because we'd been working at it and it was a very interesting experience. I was expecting it to be kind of like it was where they interviewed people that had worked on the big adventures. They had a team of them and they would collaborate and, you know, I'm going to work on this, you're going to work on that. It was exactly the opposite. They kept us completely siloed so that our adventures would not start to drift towards each other. I was working with, directly with Chris Perkins. And other people were working directly with other members of the team there. That was the level of communication. It was just back and forth with them. And then we dropped off our final version of it. And then nothing for, once again, almost a year. It was like eight, nine months. Meanwhile, you know, they did all the stuff behind the scenes. They did editing. They expanded on some of the adventures. Then, you know, fit them into a book and all that stuff. We actually didn't get to see the book until it was out. The first time I got to see it was when the advanced reviewing copies got sent out to people and they started showing them on YouTube. And once again, it's like, you know, da 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 Here's the first adventure by Mike Polkinghorn. It's like, oh, that's me. <laughs> and then of course, at that point in time, I was like I said, we didn't know what had happened. If you know in the freelance work, you'll turn your work in, and it could be a documentary on the lions of Africa. And when it gets developed and released. It could end up being a documentary on the Jeeps that go and get people around to look at the Lions of Africa. It can change entirely. So you had no idea what happened with your project in the in-between time. So they're paging through. You're like, oh, there's that. And there's that. And there's that. And tell you the truth, as long as cumin and coriander, the homunculi got in there, and then my terrible pun with the book club attack for the swarm of books, as long as those two got in there, I was pretty much happy. They could make the rest, like I said, a documentary about the Lions of Africa, for all I care. It was just kind of fun to see all the stuff that got in there. And mine changed very little. The password to get out changed. Originally it was flumps. And that must have been probably too tough for people to uh, go and discover. So they had to change that. But then there was like little tiny things like the slad tadpole in the uh, basement. That wasn't in my original version. So apparently they thought there needed to be one more monster in there or something like that. But aside of that, almost everything else was in there.
0: So it was, it was uh, kind of neat to see. After that experience, did working with someone like Chris Perkins and working with the Wizards team make you change the way that you run your own games and design your own encounters and that kind of thing?
1: It definitely made me think differently about when I write them down and put them into something. Because when you're doing that for a published product, if you're doing that for a home game or something, you can pretty much just tinker with it on the fly. Oh, this isn't working. I need three of these and not four of these. Oh, you know, this one's going to come out from the left and not the right. But when you do that for a published product, it's set in stone. It's in type. What you got there is what you got there. So it really made me have to stop and think each of the rooms like, oh, okay, they could approach this room this way, or they could approach this room this way. And if they do it this way, then this whole thing changes. Or, you know, I'm going to have to describe these three things in order to make sure that this part is clear. If you're doing it at home for your home game, if people are like giving you the curious dog head tilt, you can go and say, oh, well, let me describe that in a different way. But you actually kind of have to think about those things all ahead of time and kind of think about all the possibilities so
0: that you've got
1: them all covered right there.
0: As this is published, my Kickstarter will have wrapped up and will have been delivered to everybody. But that kind of stuff is very much on my mind as I am like finishing up the writing and reading through it like, Am I explaining this enough so that anybody could explain it to anybody else or am I like looking at it through my lenses and or my binoculars and like only have given the information that I think is relevant because everything else is already up in my head. It's a lot to think about and it's a very different way to think about writing but I have experienced this. And you'll see a
1: lot of times in the podcast with that where I'm describing something And it's just clear no one's getting it. And you're like, okay, let me take a step back and start this over again. Because like you said, it's really clear in my head where I imagined all this, but clearly I'm not describing it clearly. Let me try all over again.
0: It definitely takes some getting used to, especially from a publishing, what you're writing kind of perspective. Any other anecdotes or anything else you want to mention about working on Candlekeep Mysteries?
1: It was just a really, really neat experience. But probably the most interesting part of the whole experience was I turned in my rough draft for the adventure, and they hated
0: it. Ooh.
1: Okay, maybe that's a little bit strong word. They had an idea from my pitch what it was going to be. I had a slightly different idea. And so basically, they end up kicking it back to me. I had to start it all over again. Now with half the amount of time to do it. That was uh, fun in its own way, but also very stressful. It was like, all of a sudden, hey, I got to go back, rethink everything from scratch, take all this stuff, throw it off the table and start all over again. But at the same time, it was also, for me, a very good growth opportunity personally, because then it's like, yeah, what am I really made of here? Can I bear down and get this done in half the time the other people had? Or am I just going to go throw up my hands up and walk away, which I could have done. And people did it. Apparently, there were supposed to be more adventures. I was talking with Tony, who did the 16th level adventure, and she said that originally hers was hike higher, and they had to step it down because people with the lower, the high teens adventures apparently had pulled out of the whole thing. So I'm very proud I did not. Basically, I stepped back in and said, "Okay, I'm going to go for another round here.
0: That would have been tough. Um, I've never had a player at my game tell me, eh, we don't like this encounter. You got to go rewrite it. (laughs) I guess that'd be the equivalent. Amazing that you were able to figure it out and make it work. Yeah, well, basically,
1: I mean, I was able to keep the bones of it and just redo it. But basically, just the way I was approaching it, one of the big problems was originally it was going to transport you to this magical island instead of a uh, Cadence mansion, which would require a brand new 8th level spell be made. And they weren't real thrilled about the idea of us making a brand new 8th level spell just to make my adventure work. There was a lot of back and forth between Chris and I on how to make this happen, We ended up with the permanent Morton Cadence Mansion and the whole reason behind it uh, when we finally got done, which was really kind of sort of the best part of the whole thing. It's just so wonderfully inspiring. I mean, just all the creative juices were flowing pretty much the whole time I was doing this.
0: Right. Because like when you're writing for your own game, I just like homebrew something and make it work like, oh, yeah, I guess there is now this spell that lets you do that. Right. But when you're working with the people who designed the game, like they're probably a lot more hesitant to make stuff like that canon.
1: Definitely. I mean, you have to work within the canon. Like in Relic of the Past, there's a lot of just hand-waving I'm doing where it's like, you know, this is what happens, and there's nothing you can do about it because magic. Whereas, you know, when working within the canon, it's like you have to actually have a spell or you have to invent the spell. You can't just say magic. You can do that when you're in your homebrew campaign.
0: I'd love to know what one or two or three pieces of wisdom you've got for us about running games that you've either heard or come up with on your own as you've been running games? Yeah. What are like two to three pieces of advice you've got for DMs and GMs out there? Probably
1: the number one is include your players early. Basically, I wrote up the original map and then I asked my players for their backstory. From there, I was able to flesh out whole parts of the map, because they said, Oh, my players from here and does this. And this is his backstory. And this is what he does. I'm like, I didn't even think about having something like that there. So probably the biggest one we brought up in the game so far is I hadn't planned on putting Dragonborn in the campaign until Drew decided he was going to have a Dragonborn. And then it's like, well, I got now I have a place for the Dragonborn to be. So we came up with a whole Dragonborn nation that lives up on the mountains that are secluded from the rest of the world. So that was a whole fun trip to go on there. But then even just like little things like Port of Magnum, I had Already dreamt up that this was going to be a city that was built on numerous tiers up the side of this uh, end of the valley. But I didn't really know why that had tiers. And then Bryce came back with his uh, backstory that he was a disaffected noble that had run away from home because his family was mistreating the servants and so, so forth. And I'm like, oh, hey, now that makes more sense. Like The top tiers would be the really ritzy people with the big mansions. And then the bottom tiers is just going to be a shanty town. And then, you know, it all rolls downhill, literally in some cases. Doing that just kind of kicked off the whole creative juices there. And then the other thing I like to suggest is get out of the way of the players. When they start going and doing stuff, sit back and let them roll until uh, something happens that you actually have to get in there for Some of the best times I've had in this campaign, I'm just sitting in the back of the chair, listening to the players as they're uh, brainstorming up the next thing. And you're like, yep feel like a proud papa here my kids have gone and left the nest and now they are actual real big people now
0: i love to include players early because i feel like that is the key to getting them really involved in the story from the get-go right and the key to getting them to provide these awesome moments of role play that you talked about earlier in the episode right that comes from players who are really bought in who feel part of the story and who want to help create the story with you great advice so you've mentioned you are the dm of relic of the past you help contribute to Keep Mysteries. Anything else you want to plug here or where can people find the show? Where can people find you online? Anything to plug?
1: You can find me as Mike the Goalie on Twitter. Yeah, I've actually been on Twitter long enough to actually be able to get that handle. Right now, the podcast is eating up all of my available time because everything else in life is, like I said, we came back from the pandemic. It's all in crisis. So we're trying to keep it with the head above water. But you can find Relic of the Past basically everywhere that the podcasts are available. And uh, like I said, there's... Uh, Five years of backstory that you can possibly get into. But if you don't like listening to all of that, every year we put out a story up till now episode. So you can jump back to the most current year and catch up that way. And then if it sounds interesting, you can always jump back and see the whole rest of the story.
0: Well, thanks so much for joining me, Mike. It's been a ton of fun. It's been a long time coming. I know you and I have chatted for probably the better part of a year and we've finally been able to make it happen. So appreciate you coming on and giving us some insights and some funny stories and everything else. So yeah, uh, great chatting with you. And if I ever make it out your way, we'll have to hang out and roll some dice sometime. Oh yes, that'd be a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to How Not to DM. Now, it's time for a sneak peek into next week's guest, Vahi, DM of the live stream actual play show Dice Legends. And I find that actually time between sessions is a great time to talk to the players individually. Yes, and say, "Hey, where do you think your character is going now?" And then to get some ideas and I'm not afraid of really being really obvious and saying sending, you know, at the end of a campaign say, "Hey guys,
1: where do you guys think you're going next? Because I need to prepare for our show next week.
0: To hear Vahid's best tips and tricks for running your games, his DM origin story, and more, tune in next week. Here's a friendly reminder to rate and review the show and share it with friends and family who play TTRBGs too. New reviews will be read at the end of episodes as a thank you. Thanks to the team at T4C Studios for the help editing and producing this episode. My intro and outro music is by Daniel Zombo. The quickfire chaos music is by ExaCat, and the quickfire chaos mood music that plays underneath while we're roleplaying is by my buddy Arcane Anthems. Check out the episode notes for more of their great work. And, as always, until next time, roll some Nat 20s for me.